everybody this is um, are we podcast yet episode number 6 and this is uh, vijay from holland that's walter from belgium and we have jonathan from new zealand all right okay one of the best places to be right now <laughs> yeah covid yeah, free much to my surprise after living here for a few years that it turned into a really good choice yeah yeah i mean i think i was just reading something online uh, on reddit like somebody from new zealand saying it's surreal to be in new zealand now because everything is people go to conventions people go to bars and then everything is going okay yeah it's like the rest of the world isn't in a state of pure panic you just walk around like it's normal i mean i think yeah. that there's there's concern rightly so that you know maybe it's hidden and we just aren't seeing it and will be in the same place in a couple of months but i'm not trying to jinx us but uh yeah you never know <laughs> yeah yeah i mean it seems to be a very you know sane people driven by sane government so yeah yeah crossing my fingers <laughs> that's true <laughs> <laughs> we can't compare that to you know rest of the western world or the bigger parts of the western world these days um anyway so let's let's get uh, you know straight into um you know uh, jonathan how did you get into programming you know what what do you do maybe a bit of introduction sure um so i guess i got into programming really young i was probably like 6 or 7 because i have an older brother who's 10 years older than me and he um we had a uh, what is that a ti 994a like a texas instrument um it's like yeah, a yeah, yeah, glorified yeah. keyboard that you plug into the tv and you could play little games and and write little bits of code on it and to do anything interesting you had to learn how to code this thing a bit so he you know he was 16 and 17 at the time when we got this for christmas and i remember him like taking the source code for one game and then tweaking it and changing the graphics and i was like watching over his shoulder going what in the world are you doing like this is just <laughs> fascinating right and um So he did that for a year or two, but of course, indelibly left a mark in my brain that I would then pursue for the rest of my life, which is like how do I make computers do something like that? Like how do I, you know, take the code and change it? You know, I used to um when I had a Commodore back in the day, you could get the magazines. Um like Ahoy and Camera Byte, I think was the other one, something like that. and in the magazines would have like a printout of the code so you would see the code and you would try to type it in and I'm like an 8 year old or 9 year old trying to type for hours trying to type these programs in and get them working um but yeah that's kind of where i got started was that style of really manual programming oh nice and then um as uh as like as i just kind of you know put the time in i have a cousin jason who is now a like a c++ expert trainer that kind of flies around the world and teaches people c++ so he and i kind of are around the same age we're about 6 months different and in when i was in the high school he started showing me what you know the kinds of things that he was working on so he was also getting into programming and we had this like natural competition cooperation with each other like you know i would write a little bit of code send it to him he would like change it update it send it back to me <laughs> over the over mail 
with like, you know, three and a half inch floppies. So, um, yeah, that was very slow collaboration, but uh, it was fun. We had a, a good old time with that. It's like the proto pull request. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Snail mail pull yeah. request. Yeah. No, that's awesome. Like I, I mean, I I used to have like a Commodore One Twenty Eight. Uh, it's like oh yeah, that's what we had. Those are those are a lot yeah. of fun. Yeah, but I never bought the magazines. But uh, so I was essentially just typing random garbage into them to sort of see what happened. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and so Commodore was, was interesting in that um, I think in Commodore One Twenty Eight and one of the other ones, you could split the mode. So you could have text in the bottom half of the screen and then graphics mode on the top half of the screen. So as you wrote commands in the bottom half, you could see them reflected in the top half, which was, you know, if you're doing like circle drawing and line drawing, you could just draw little pictures one line of code at a time, which I thought was great. Yeah. No, like I never managed to accomplish that. Damn. Um, (laughs) (laughs) I missed out. Yeah, but the, it's it's it. I mean, I, what I liked about it was also like the immediacy. It's kind of like you just you just. I mean, you felt like you were sort of like in control of the raw thing. Like you change something and like it updates automatically. Like you write a byte somewhere, but boom, immediately goes on the screen. Yeah, that's like that was very rewarding. Indeed, I <laughs> I want to say that you could update even the glyphs of the fonts, and then all the screen would change with the new glyph. And it was like, wait a second, yeah. I'm, I'm manipulating the system itself. Wow. Yeah. Absolute power. Sorry. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> so that was basically high school for me was, you know, having fun with my cousin and with some high school friends. We would share code with each other. And mm. it just kind of kept pushing me and kept pushing me further and further and further. And then, of course, by the time I got to college, I was like, okay, I, computer science, computer programming, that's what I need to do. And um, yeah. yeah, did that and then just kind of took that as my career path. Mm. So professionally, so where did you start then? So I was doing, when I first got out of college, I worked in telephony. So back then, this was 2000. So there's a lot of dot-com boom, a lot of big ideas. And this particular company's idea was that you could take a web page and then sprinkle telephony instructions. That means instructions to a telephone system. And you would call up with a normal telephone. It would dial into a website, and then you would run through the website via the telephone. Um, So for example, you could do multiple choice. And the multiple choice mm-hmm. would go look to see if they had voice recordings for each of those choices. And if it didn't, it would kind of do text-to-speech, read it back to you. And then you'd say which one you wanted, and it would select it for you. So you're basically filling out forms using your telephone. And oh, the wow. idea back then was that you could have this thing call out to people to do surveys, or if there's emergency information, to quickly get some information about people. And mm-hmm. it would all be through the same technology stack that you know you'd build your website from. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, now that I describe it, it sounds a little weird. At the time, it it made sense <laughs> because you know it wasn't that we had widespread broadband internet everywhere. Yeah. 
you know, a lot of people still had phones and still talked on the phone and still answered the phone, you know, so it was a definitely different time period. Was it the speech recognition good enough? Because you do need to, or, or did you get the input from the, from the, the, the the DTF tones? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I think you, I think we had both. I remember we definitely, you could use your phone to say like option one, option two, option three that way. But, Mm -hmm. um, at one point, they added what they called command and control uh, interfaces, which means it has a very limited grammar, very limited vocabulary, and you would just say mm. the word in that very limited vocabulary. So, um, yeah, it, it wasn't great, but it did work. So I was, I kind of did <laughs> nice. that for a while. And then um, what did I do after that? Oh, yeah, I was in a startup, so I did... I helped port Linux to the PlayStation 2 and worked on like PlayStation 2 related, um, not so much games, but what non-game applications for PlayStation 2 would be like. So we worked on a, Mm -hmm. um, what the heck were they called back then? Uh, Goodness. Where you could get like streams of audio and play it on your, on your TV. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um, goodness, I'm trying to remember some of the old like shoutcast no, <laughs> and those kinds of things, right? So yeah, something yeah. like that, but then it was mm-hmm. had a nice UI and everything that felt more at home on a console. So we worked on that and and some, you know, before Steam was Steam, how would you deliver yeah. software and that kind of thing? So we worked on that as well. Mm-hmm. So I did that for a while. I did some other random sundry things. At one point, mm. I landed and did um, for an audio video reseller. They were doing experimental ways of selling speaker systems. Mm-hmm. So we worked on how do you simulate audio? Like, how do you simulate different speakers using one pair of speakers? And oh, you can get like into some really sort of thing. Yeah, like, like, um, so the two speakers hit your ear at the same time, and you can, in that one point in space, calculate how to make them sound like other speakers. It was pretty wild. Yeah. The guy I worked with was, he had some really cool ideas, and we put this thing together. Yeah. And sure enough, you know, you could measure it at that point in space and see that it's, it's the same as a different yeah. set of speakers. Incidentally, a bit of technology that really I have not seen anywhere else, and I would love to see that that technology elsewhere. Uh, and I did that for a while. Uh, Maybe not quite the same, but I think similar things exist in music production software. Oh, no, actually, you know, that's a good point. Um, there's in more like really, really recently, one of the techniques that we're doing was to be able to a model, like model the speaker, and then to yeah. apply those sound filters so that what comes out has the same characteristics. And yeah. there's there's a thing called audio modeling now that they use for, like a, a guitarist might use it and get a really expensive piece of gear that can model other speaker systems. And he just yep. has to, hmm. you know, or he or she just switches the knob or sets the settings. And now they've got this yep. kind of speaker system or this kind of speaker system. Yep. Um, and so, yeah, that that kind of stuff is I guess is coming out in music production these days. It's pretty cool. Yeah. Then you can simulate even like the microphone placement 
on how far it is from the speaker and things like that. So yeah, it's pretty cool. I wish I had started that in what was that 2006? (laughs) Where would I be now? Yeah. Um, speaking so of 2000, you, you went from, yeah. Yeah. I was just going to say, speaking of 2006, from that, that's when I started first writing my own programming languages. Um, so I, I worked on like a pseudo natural programming language, meaning it's, it looks like English. I worked on yeah. a couple other projects and I did those for, for years. So between 2006 and 2009, I was making new languages and tweaking existing ones. I did one called Minnow, which had tons of, um, it was like an actor-based programming language. And you could spawn mm-hmm. tons of these micro threads and they would interact with each other. Oh, wow. And yeah, wow. I did that till 2009 and decided, okay, <laughs> I have to go to grad school. I can't just keep doing this on the side. I eventually just quit my job just so I could work in programming languages full time. It's like I have mm-hmm. to I have to find a way to do this for a living. So, uh-huh. That's right. So where, where did you get the the inspiration for all of the language stories? Was it just like, okay, I'm gonna try out a few random ideas, or was there yeah. like what what sparked what sparked it? Like what it was were you trying to scratch your own itch or was it really just like, okay, what kind of crazy stuff can I do? I, I think it was a combination of things. So in two thousand five I was doing a contract with a friend of mine in his company. And I, I was working on this contract and the code I was writing, they later had to rewrite. And to me, that was as a programmer, I felt a lot of shame about not writing up to, you know, up to a good bar of quality. Hmm. And so I was like, wait, how do you write good code? Why do we write it the way that we write it? And instead of being a normal person and just thinking about that for the weekend, I then proceeded to think about that forever after. So, you know, kind of in the back of my mind, always looking at programming languages from through the lens of how does this help us write good programs? What is it about how these languages are put together that make it comfortable to write, you know, in a really good way? So I was exploring Mm -hmm. from those different directions. One, what if we made it more like English? Or what if we took a concept like the hash table or an object or um or like the idea of methods, can we separate methods out from everything else and just apply methods in a more ad hoc way? So I was mm. ex- just trying different things about the um, different aspects of programming languages and then creating a small language to say, well, if we emphasize this part of it, what does what happens when you do that? Yeah. Uh, some of that mm. did turn into real things. So I mentioned my cousin earlier who works in C++. And at the time, I was also doing a lot of C++. He was teaching me C++. And we said, well, okay, let's do a programming language that's meant to sit inside of a C++ application. This is Mm. called, uh, Mm. nowadays it's called ChaiScript. It's this project that we wrote together. And it embeds a scripting engine, but it the scripting engine works with all the C++ type system. So you can do... Mm. Um, method overloading and and whatnot. And the script engine will just properly call the methods. It knows about the types and what and, and whatnot as well. So it feels really good to use ChaiScript from inside C++ because you can just expose your C++ you know, application as an engine to it. 
and then it can just mm -hmm. call straight in. It, it doesn't feel like there's a lot of friction, maybe is the way to say it. Uh, okay. So yeah, he's been working on that since then. So it's um, yeah. yeah, it's pretty cool that it's kind of had a life of its own um, yeah. as well. Okay, now now I get the why why Rye script is named as Rye script. Oh yeah, <laughs> yeah, so, yeah. Maybe yeah, jumping I was ahead a little bit. Yeah, 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 exactly. So I did. Spoiler um, alert. <laughs> yeah, we did Chai script, and I was like, well, this is. I did a future in the future. I did a version um, called RH. AI instead of CHAI. I was like, because it's yeah, not yeah. C++, it's Rust. Right. <laughs> it's Rust. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. So, so from, from Chai scripts, uh, so that, that was still, um, is it like a commercial thing or is it something that you're just, you know? It, um, yeah, it was just like an, an open, open source, source project content. we put out there to see if anyone wanted to actually do embedded scripting in their applications. Yeah. And, yeah. you know, as with open source, one of the things I've I've learned over the years, it's like you can never ever predict how people are going to use your code. You just put yeah. it out there, and then, hey! So we had um, when bitcoins and all that kind of stuff was really getting popular. Mm -hmm. I, well, one person took ChaiScript and turned it into a language for doing digital currency transactions. And I was like, okay, oh, wow, cool, <laughs> <laughs> wow, yeah. So. We did ChaiScript, and I worked on that for a little while. And then by then, I was, OK, I have to go to grad school. I got into grad school mm -hmm. in Colorado and did that mm -hmm. for a few years. And that opened a ton of doors. Mm. So as part of that, I worked at Cray on a language called Chapel, which unfortunately Ooh. not enough people know about. Chapel is really, it's pretty fancy, <laughs> but it's it was never really marketed to the larger open source community. So a lot of people that would look for that system language that had a really powerful metaprogramming system could do you know, powerful parallel and distributed programming, like don't even mm -hmm. know it exists. So that's, that's one that I wish more people could just go experiment with and try it out. So I worked at, um, did a summer with Cray, worked on Chapel. I did a mm -hmm. summer at Apple. And worked on LLVM, so I got to work mm -hmm. with some like huh? amazing people at Apple. Uh, incidentally, I was so intimidated too because you're just around these people. That, you know, for the last five or six years, I've been reading about these people, and then all of a sudden, I'm they're in the office next you're door, and I'm them. like, uh, yeah. uh. <laughs> <laughs> so that yeah, that was a really intense summer because I had to up my game quite a lot. But I also was just like, wow, I'm just going to absorb as much as I can from people like, you know, Chris Latner and Doug Greger, these people that, you know, did these amazing feats like, oh, I created LVM. Oh, I made the C++ yeah. version of Clang it was like in a year. <laughs> what? <laughs> wow. You were an Uber hacker. That is amazing. Yeah. So I did. Yeah, I was at Apple for a summer and then the. Mm -hmm. The third summer at grad school, I got a job at Microsoft. And they were pitching it as, oh, yeah, we've got this JavaScript project. And <laughs> hey, this JavaScript project you might be interested in. You know, In the interviews, they had me write little bits of code of what a type system for JavaScript might look like. Ha ha, OK. Yeah. You know, spoiler <laughs> alert, that became TypeScript. <laughs> So wow. yeah, this is back before it was even public. It only had like 
two or three small teams using it inside of Microsoft. No one outside of Microsoft knew it existed. And kind of coming in and then sitting down, I felt a bit of flashback with Apple, mm-hmm. where at Apple, yep. I had like, you know, Chris Latner, which is like really in the programming language world is like, whoa, Chris Latner. And um, then some of the people that I would kind of come to meet in this TypeScript world, like Anders Helsberg, who invented C Sharp and C Sharp, yeah. Turbo Pascal, uh, and like, you know, all these other well known languages. Hmm. So he was working on it. Matt Ferguson, who was the C Sharp design team lead, was working on hmm. it. And I was like, whoa. So, yeah, but it was good practice to have Apple to think, all right, these people just people. These people are just normal people. <laughs> Don't get intimidated. Um, yeah. It was another really amazing experience to kind of start in at a programming language that was just getting started and then see how mm. do you take a programming language and grow it to be like a full, you know, million user industrial grade project. Um, yeah. So yeah, that was that was awesome. So there was a TypeScript. Uh, so I think then, then it... it kind of exploded, right? I mean, TypeScript was everywhere. And essentially, you know, bigger projects adapting TypeScript everywhere, yeah. like Angular and, and I mean, whatnot. And- in, in the moment, I never saw or felt the explosion, which is kind of yeah. interesting. You know, you just feel a little bit of growth and then you get a little bit of news that next week that someone, some other company was using it. And you're like, yay, go us. We got yeah. one more company using it, you know, publicly. <laughs> and you would just yeah. kind of, accrue these little successes and so Mm. it felt actually rather slow especially initially because when we first came out with it i remember going to a javascript conference and it was Mm. like (laughs) you put type information on the screen with some javascript code and you could just see their eyes glaze over like why would you (laughs) do that (laughs) that is ridiculous and that's fair point like they hadn't, yeah. the JavaScript community had um, embraced linting and that kind of thing, but types, mm. like that, that was a step too far, you know, back in yeah. 2000, what was this, 2012, 2013. Uh. Mm. So, yeah, I remember we did that and we got a lot of pushback. We were like, no, trust us. And then you do some demos, you know, you pull up your IDE and get completions and errors and go to definition and it looks cool, but um, yeah, they, it, took a, it took a few years for, I think, TypeScript to really get traction inside of the JavaScript community because they say, yeah. well, once they try it, you know, we did um, the team that created Visual Studio Code mm-hmm. was one of the first yeah. people that used TypeScript. And they only had one or two people on the team that were comfortable using it initially. But they said, oh, here's this thing that a a partner team is working on. We'll try it out. If it's good, maybe we'll write more in it. So they wrote a little bit of code in TypeScript. You know, one file here, they'll convert to TypeScript. And as they converted it, they said, this is actually pretty good. (laughs) We, (laughs) you you should look at that, you you know, and then they tell their coworkers, you you should check that out. So then they take that one file becomes like two or three. And, you know, Mm -hmm. over time, it kind of takes over because they spread how much TypeScript is in the code base. Mm. You know, so by 2012, 2013, they're you know, a couple of years on, 
with the initial versions of what would become Visual Studio Code. And it, now by then it's like 100% TypeScript. And that's yeah. that kind of organic spreading in a code base, I think is really one of the secret powers, if you will, of what made TypeScript mm. actually get traction. Because you could just experiment yeah. a little bit. Then you're like, whoa, okay, cool. That was cool. Yeah, yeah. You know, I got an error or I got a, I fixed a bug when I converted it. Mm. So um, yeah, yeah I, we had... I know that... I experimented with it around that time, I think. Maybe it was a bit later, like five years ago. So it was maybe like 2015. But in the same way, like, all right, we're going to do like one file or a few utility functions and kind of like see how this works. Um, unfortunately, like it remained there because I had structured the the majority of the code in a way that TypeScript really did not like. Like, so like a lot of it was basically, I was like enriching objects or not objects, but like maps as they went through pipelines. Mm -hmm. And so that was basically uh, horrible to type out because yeah. the signatures yeah. would just be we totally weird. So we did a few utilities and it was really nice, but couldn't really get it into the rest of the code base because it wasn't. I know the code wasn't designed to work with TypeScript. Right? It's right. not. It wasn't a failure of type, TypeScript itself. It was just sort of we, or at least I, I had leaned very hard into the dynamic nature of JavaScript for better or worse. Right. And so it was right. too much work. Yeah. No, and I think that's a great point. I think, especially early on, we tried to get um, companies or projects using it and got feedback like that. And we said, well, maybe we should work on getting JavaScript libraries using it. Because if the library uses it, yeah. maybe they're a little bit more statically defined. API services are slightly less dynamic. Yeah. And even then, I, I remember Ember wanted to switch. Uh, we're experimenting yeah. with switching. And they had some dynamism in the Ember um, mm -hmm. implementation. They're like, oh, wow, that dynamism is really hard to describe in TypeScript. So can we get some more features? Yeah. And that mm. kind of push-pull with the JavaScript community, I think, actually helped mm. develop the, um, the TypeScript type system. Like, now it's pretty sophisticated to be able to, to build out how your, your definitions come about and say, OK, it's this definition merged with this one is the new, uh, it's the new type coming out of yeah. this function. Mm. So yeah, worked on TypeScript for you know, three, three and a half years and kind of shepherded it all the way to like a good, healthy success. It had um, Angular had announced that they were moving on to it. Yeah, and yeah. a couple other fairly large projects had moved on to it at that time. So I, you know, mm. I kind of exited Microsoft, wanted to take a break, wanted mm. to get away mm. for a while. So I, I did a bit of travel, which is um, how I found out about New Zealand and what it's like to be here. I, I kind of traveled mm. through New Zealand. Um, during my break, I said, oh, yeah, I could live there. <laughs> <laughs> and then ended up moving here um, a year after that. It's exactly what happened to a friend of mine, by the way. What's that? He, he traveled. It's, it's exactly what happened to a friend of mine. He traveled the world for three years. Like, he never stayed more than two months in a given country. And like eventually, he ended up in New Zealand. And I think he's been there now for five years six years yeah. so so he's like yeah i can live here <laughs> it's got a very relaxed vibe you know it's uh 
it's a nice place to live. It's definitely a nice place to live. Um, yeah. As part of that, I guess that's that's the entry into Rust was after TypeScript. So I had all this experience working in programming languages, how to make a programming language grow. And mm. the TypeScript team was looking for someone to join it. And I said, well, are you interested in someone that hasn't touched serious systems programming in like 10 years, but just got done working on a programming language, like uh, growth from like tiny to large? It's like, yes, please help. <laughs> so <clears throat> that was the, the plan was to join the Rust team as an engineer, so work on software. Yeah. But also to kind of share my experience on the TypeScript project to see if there are things that you know the Rust team could do to transition. Mm. Yeah. Mm. The transition from being kind of a research language to being like a real serious contender. Yeah. Mm. Good. So yeah, I did um the first thing that I did when I joined the Rust team was to work on the Rust compiler error messages. So back then, in fact, we could maybe, I don't know if you have show notes for this podcast, but maybe we could chuck a, chuck a link in there. There is um, yeah, sure. a link called The Shape of Errors to Come. I think it's what it was okay. called. It was a riff off the jazz album, The Shape of Jazz to Come, where <laughs> your listeners are familiar. Okay. But um, mm. yeah, The Shape of Errors to Come. And it it kind of shows the current style of the errors back then, and then the potential new way that we could show them. And without showing this visually over the podcast, it's a little bit hard to describe. But the mm -hmm. idea behind the design was to, to trim away everything that wasn't your code and some information about how to fix whatever the problem is. You know, yeah. back then we had long lines about the file location and we were fitting some format that an automatic you know, system would use to, to, you know, do continuous integration or whatever. I don't know. It yeah, wasn't, yeah, it didn't yeah. feel like it was meant yeah. for humans. Mm -hmm. And I said, well, okay, you know, um, Nico Matsaki who's the compiler team lead for Rust, um, was playing with some ideas with me and he's like, oh, I had this, this little idea and he shows me his sketch and I just kind of took the idea and ran with it. And we created mm -hmm. an error message that had this laser focus on your code in the order that you wrote it with like little labels underneath. Um, so any people that are doing modern Rust programming listening to this podcast are probably like, yeah, isn't that just what errors look like? And <laughs> yeah. yes, that's why. <laughs> but um, yeah. yeah, it's kind of cool that that had a life of its own too. I, I, you know, to this day, I'm still, I don't know, I get like warm, that warm fuzzy feeling when I see someone use it. So PowerShell <laughs> 7 now has the yeah. style of error message. Wow, that's awesome. Yeah. Given your vast experience with different programming languages, you know, um, why do you think most of the languages don't think about that part of the UX? You know, that, that is something people experience every day, multiple times, right? You know, trying to convince the compiler, so to speak. Yeah, I mean... Somebody is thinking about closures factories this year. Um, <laughs> So or that's C++ a crossover that nobody yeah. Or, yeah yeah exactly um like, like i think that there's a lot of factors the reason i'm pausing is i'm just like which factor do i i talk about because 
you know, you have, there's a human factor about it was painful for me, so it should be painful for you. Like this is, um, <laughs> this is a really bad human habit, but we carry, a lot of us carry it, right? Whatever was yeah, difficult yeah. for me, I naturally make it harder on the next person because it's, yeah. it's that sense that we all go through the gauntlet and then you earn your way, right? It's like the misery loves uh, company. So, you know, yeah, <laughs> let's add more people to this. <laughs> yeah. And then there's yeah. kind of a group of people that go through the pain and say, well, I'm going to try to make it easier for the next person. And I yeah. think luckily the Rust team had more of that style. And so they're very, mm. you know, putting an idea out there to say we should make it easier for the next generation. Uh, a lot yeah. of people said, okay, yeah, let's do that, which made it possible. I think one of the other things is people don't, you know, think about the fact that they are losing seconds every time they see an error message. And those seconds yeah. add up because mm. it's just a little at a time. It's like the death by paper cut to use a, a terrible yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, um, yeah. thing. But this idea that, okay, if it only happens a little bit at a time, then, you know, maybe it's not so bad. But really, once you tighten, tighten it up, so the design saves you those two or three seconds. Like mm -hmm. it makes a humongous difference to in terms of like how fast can I iterate on this idea? You know, how fast uh -huh. can I, you know, feel comfortable looking at the error message? When we first th started doing the work, um, I'm gonna I'm gonna name Alex. So Alex Crichton, who is <laughs> a, just a genius uh, developer, he. And I were sitting next to each other at the office, the Mozilla office in San Francisco. And I started, I first started working on these error message design. I turned over to Alex and I said, Alex, when you look at the current error messages, what do you look at? What do you look for? Like, like how do you find what the error is? He said, I don't look at the error. <laughs> I was like, what do you, what do you look at, Alex? And he's like, I look at the location of, of where it's, you know, it's going to be pointed. Yeah. Like, what's the file? So in his mind, like the error wasn't even helpful to figure it out. He just wants to know, you know, give me the general line and file and I'll figure out the rest. Yeah, I yeah. said, we can definitely make it easier than that. <laughs> and that, that was the goal. So mm -hmm. we, we did um, error messages. And as we started building momentum around UX changes for developers, there's, a, there's kind of a sense, well, we can do more. And I said, all right, I'm going to put out a survey. The survey will tell us where the big areas are. I think I have a hunch, but mm. it's better to have data. <laughs> we'll see. Yeah. Mm. So we put out the survey. And in the survey, we put a question, you know, if you use Rust, you know, tell us how you use it. If you don't use Rust, tell us why you don't use it. And of the results that came back that year, 25% said, because you don't have good IDE support. Mm. And, you know, you yeah. have a systems language and a bunch of systems programmers all of a sudden going, oh, there's a whole world of other programmers that live in a totally different environment than we live. You know, yeah. they might be comfortable in Emacs or, v or VI, but that is a different yeah. world than millions and millions of developers doing C Sharp or Java or you know, these languages that have yeah. really sophisticated IDEs and they need mm. that to make the change. So I started working on the Rust language server, which was like the first IDE 
um, yeah. integration, like a, a formalized IDE integration that you uh, could, you know, we could uh, get you completions and error messages and go to definition, et cetera, in one place. And then it uses mm -hmm. the language server protocol. So you could plug this into Visual Studio Code or, you know, your favorite um, IDE. Any other. Yeah. And uh, get this Rust development experience. So that's mm -hmm. the the second thing that I worked on was mm -hmm. developing that um, with some with some other folks on the team. And then mm -hmm. um, yeah. Can can I make a can I make a slight tangent sure. on the IDE? Yes, um, of course. Because with something like Java, I feel like you need the IDE. Like it's gotten to the point, I mean, it feels like to me where it's almost impossible to build or do anything on on a you know sizable code base without the IDE, and I I don't really like that. I'm, I can't say why, <laughs> but I I kind of like the intimacy of just running something like Cargo Build and that spitting out and doing like most of the work. It's like the fact I, I kind of still because like. I, I, I'm trying to put my finger in. Like, it makes me feel more in control. Or at least I have an understanding of what is going on. But like with Java, I sometimes, especially when I've been doing some Android development in the last few years on the side, and like it's almost impossible to to build or change anything without Android Studio. And it makes yeah. I, I I feel out of control. Like it's doing a whole bunch of stuff, and I don't really know what. And I feel like it limits my understanding of the system. I'm not sure how to put this. Mm. So, which, which in a way is part of like the developer UX, right? Like it loses some of that in immediacy. I'm, I mean, it's just a tangent. I'm not sure what you think about it. Yeah, no, I think that's an interesting point. I think, you know, when you, when you start thinking about UX, I think there's a fear that UX means that it's better for someone else and worse for me, you know, in some way. <laughs> like you're you're setting a dial and you're dialing it away from what I want towards what someone yeah. else wants. And one of the things that in Rust development that they the Rust team and the kind of development community around Rust really pushed hard is this idea they call it bending the curve, meaning mm -hmm. that instead of you know, emphasizing one side or the other side, try to make both better. Try to not try to not um, make one side better at the expense of the other. So they both have uh -huh. to like lift and and I don't know why they call it bending the curve, but <laughs> but it's probably on some <laughs> blog post somewhere that I, I can't remember. Um, yeah. But that's the idea is that you you try to look for that third solution that actually lifts both sides. And I think with Rust, there is there is at least some of that where um, you know you can still use your VI. In fact, a lot of Rust developers use VI and Emacs to this day. Mm. Or you can get your full IDE experience and have that, you know, have that. Yeah. Um, I would say Rust itself as a language. It's a little bit tricky unless you have really high attention span. You know, once you start working in traits and macros, it's a lot to keep in your mind at the same time. So it's nice to have a bit yeah. of IDE help to navigate yeah, yeah. to the definitions where they're coming from. But um, yeah, 
yeah, I think it's it really is designed so it's not required, which I think is nice. Yeah. But it's it's nice that you have the same, uh, especially because of the LSP and you know RLS and all these things these days. Um, it's it's nice that you can have the consistent experience across uh. all the all the things because previously it used to be you have to use an IDE to get this kind of behavior. And then there is some hacky thing that you need to build it in, in, in either Emacs or Vim or whatever the editor that you're using. Um, but now it's much better because everything is backed by the same engine. You know, uh, so you get the, the common protocol. So I think that's, yeah. that's a nice, uh, nice, nice, you know, maybe that, that's so-called bending the curve. So bringing, yeah. <laughs> bringing normal editor people and IDE people to, to the same level. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Then you only have to write it that one time and you can yeah. adapt it. Exactly. Um, I mean, it's it's not like I'm against an IDE. Far from it. Like yeah, we should yeah. all have quality of life things. Like I started out writing Java in Notepad and invoking Java C on command yeah, log prompt. Yeah. Like I have no intention of going back there. You know, like that <laughs> was not pleasant. Um, yeah. But it's it's more on and I I earlier today I watched a talk by Dan Liu on on files and like how crazy complicated just writing to a file is mm -hmm. and one of the things he says is like yeah you know like uh, for ssds you know like they were supposed to not have errors anymore because you have ecc you know you've got error correcting codes mm, yeah but turns out that well they wouldn't function at all if they didn't have error correcting codes you know mm. a sign of like there, it's leaning on that feature so much that that yeah. it wouldn't work at all if it wasn't there and that's a bit my feeling with IDEs where yeah. <laughs> we'll pave over that with a whole bunch of automation in an IDE. Yeah. And it's like is, that's yeah. So it's not an either or like in in if you're doing mobile development, right? As you said, Android Studio, I did some iOS development. It's it's impossible to do without having Xcode. Yes. It's impossible because everything is just baked into the quote unquote you know IDE. It's one of the worst pieces of IDEs I've ever used, but but everything is just built into that thing. So yeah. you can't do anything outside of it. In the, embedded annoying. development is often the same. Like they'll be like, yeah, you know, like the code's open source. But you yeah. know what? The build tool chain isn't. Yeah. yeah. Um, so or the build. signing or whatever you need to actually deploy yeah. the application. Yeah. 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 just So yeah. So I worked on <laughs> worked on Rust for a while and mm. um, came back and working on Azure these days. But in my spare time, I'm working on a, a new project called New Shell, N-U-S-H-E-L-L. -L. And this is, um, uh, wow, it's definitely, it was a project we started a little over a year ago. And as mm, we started yeah. it, I knew that this was something different. You know, you might have a project for a weekend and say, well, that was fun. But, <laughs> you know, every time I started working on this one, I said, oh, I just get this like warm, this is good. This is just goodness. <laughs> so the idea of New Shell for the listeners who haven't, haven't played with it yet is that, so we have shells like Bash and CCSH and Fish and whatnot. And they lean really heavily on the 70s Unix philosophy, which is you have a standard in and a standard out and you pass text between them. And yeah. these these programs can compose that way and it's really powerful, but it's like text. 
there's yeah. now you want to output a structure. Well, okay, pick a serialization format and then deserialize it on the other side and hope everything works. Mm. And so you, because that's the case, we never really got to the point where we standardized on how these things really interacted. Well, I mean, in modern day, we have all kinds of standard um, protocols that we could use or you know, standard ways to structure data. And um, so we're like, why don't we just make something where we can share structured data between applications and have that as a shell, have that as a, you know the, the basis of a shell. Now, PowerShell is yeah. like that for, for users. I was going to say, yeah. I was going to say, like, the design looks like PowerShell. Like, how much were you influenced by that? There's definitely some influence. So at the time, Yehuda Katz, who um, worked on Ruby on Rails and Ember yeah. and a few other things, he was starting up with PowerShell. He you know, was doing every week. He would maybe write a blog post or two about his adventures in PowerShell. And from the perspective of a Rust user looking at PowerShell, there's a lot of things that jump out at you. So PowerShell is object-oriented. Mutates yeah. by default. Uh, you know the yeah. kind of code that you write is very imperative. It doesn't feel functional. It doesn't feel like you would write it mm. in Rust. And so, from that perspective, it's kind of like asking the question: What would a functional version of PowerShell be like? You know, something that was uh. immutable by default, that worked on streams of structured data rather than objects, so that you're composing filters on like a source for the data you compose these filters together and as you compose them you can see the intermediate representation without worrying about being in some weird state or variables um yeah. leaking from one block to another etc cetera, etc cetera. so there's there's some design changes that you could make from really fundamental changes in the system you know like What's the difference between like a Haskell and a C sharp, right? It's completely yeah, different yeah. worlds. Uh, yeah. So why new shell and PowerShell may look similar on the surface, I think once you start using them, you'll see that one is very like object oriented in that style, mm. and one is very functional programming style. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah, he was um experimenting with PowerShell, accruing these ideas for what a functional version of that might look like. And then I jumped on and we started working on this together where, um, you know, at the time we had just some ideas, we were just getting it stood up and then that began to grow a set of, all right, we should be able to import JSON and TOML and YAML and whatever yeah. into a single structured format. That was the internal representation of this data. So for Rust users listening, you know, Serde, S-E-R-D-E, Serde, has mm -hmm. a internal value representation that things deserialize into. And then mm -hmm. you can use that to serialize or deserialize back out. So this idea that you can have a single value that was like an enumeration of all the data types in your system. So it was strong enough to model pretty much any of the data that you would want. Like, well, why don't we just expose that to a new programming language? Mm. And so New Shell grew this idea of being able to deserialize into a tabular, like a tabular data format. You know, yeah. you could work on that table 
And then you can output that table into whatever format you wanted. So for example, if I type ls, I get a table with columns like name, size, date. And then I can yeah. say, okay, ls pipe where mm. size greater than 100 kilobytes. And it would just mm. give me the files that were greater than 100 kilobytes. And that where statement works the same way. If I say ps pipe where CPU greater than 10, like 10% of the CPU. Yeah. And then it would give you the mm. same thing. So this mm. where command, I can just reuse it because it's the same one type of tabular value data. Yeah. But does that mean you're you're re-implementing all the shell commands or are, are you in a way yeah existing ones? Yeah. Um the plan is not to be, say, fully POSIX compliant. Because yeah. POSIX was created, you know, back in a different era. And the way that yeah. you know it's kind of grown since then is it's even mm. even POSIX compliant things have a whole bunch of additional <laughs> things that you would need to support. Yeah. Exceptions and yeah, yeah. Right. Um, just the other day I was complaining as a sidebar, I was complaining that standard out and standard error, even even those aren't very standard. So people will <laughs> people will redirect standard out and then output all their output to standard error. And from bash, you don't know the difference, you know? <laughs> yeah. So yeah. <laughs> yeah. So we did, yeah, we did this value-based uh, system, and then you can kind of compose these filters together. And then it mm. just kind of kept growing and growing. So we added more files, um, file format support. We added support for binary data. And then mm. one of um, Yehuda's friends, Andres, he jumped on and started helping us out. Now, this was kind of... Uh, pre-COVID, but mm. um, just the just the the fortuitousness of some of the help that we got early on was kind of amazing. So Andres had done some data, um, like data-oriented programming kinds of stuff, like data, mm. uh, data science-y programming. And yeah. so he was like helping us fill out the language from the perspective of like the data programming. So yeah. He was like, oh, you need this kind of clause and this kind of clause to be able to manipulate the tables in more sophisticated ways. So he's like adding these things and then fast forward to, you know, the unfortunate growth of COVID around the world. And, you know, it hits Ecuador, which is where Andres is based. And he starts mm -hmm. modeling the spread in Ecuador. So this is all in new shell using these, these commands that we've built up doing data science and um, yeah. modeling like how it's spreading to figure out you know where it's being underreported like what areas in the country it's being underreported to go see yeah. if if people can get the information out there and get tested and whatnot so yeah. um, I kind of jumped ahead a little bit but it's it's amazing <laughs> like we were saying earlier like you never know how open source is going to get used to put this you know functionality out there and even people on your team may have a use for it that just like it's completely surprising and really powerful. Yeah. It almost feels like you you got like the Python data frames into shell world, right? Yeah. Like pandas yeah. And, There's and a bit of Pandas in there. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, 
In fact, I just wrote an RFC for New Shell to say we should formally introduce data frames into New Shell. <laughs> <Data frames. laughs> um, yeah, this. The more I describe, I can't describe New Shell in one way. I maybe I just got to decide that that is just the case because yeah. from a data programming perspective, it feels beta, very data sciencey. You know, it's mm. got this table format, and you can manipulate the data. From like the PowerShell Bash user, it feels like an interactive shell. So you can yeah. kind of CD around and manipulate your files, and that's cool. Um, mm. We added support to be able to run inside Jupyter. So like a Jupyter notebook, you can pull Ooh. up New Shell. And if I say open an image file, it's just going to give you the image. You know, if mm, I nice. in the future, if I want to graph some data, it's just going to pull up a Jupyter, you know, graph and you could interact with it and that kind of thing. Yeah. So it, it doesn't feel like the the more you think about it, it doesn't really feel like it's one thing, but that it's mm. it's a way for people to interact with their systems and their file and their data, like very much in an like an interactive, <laughs> not to use that yeah, word yeah. twice, but yeah. that's the intent, <laughs> right? But if, if you, I mean, when, you, when you're talking about the the way the data is, I mean, if I look back or my, my daily usage of probably most of the people's usage of shell is pretty much that, right? Data exploration. Right. So you just query something and then get something back and then you want to explore further in that one. So I think shells are pretty much like that, you know, right. at least 80% of the use cases. Yeah. And I think we saw, I saw a tweet the other day that said, well, I've moved to new shell and just deleted 12 other utilities. And <laughs> I think that that's, yeah. that's one of the roles it's trying to fill is that you know, we have things like JQ and, yeah. you know, our CSV editors and whatnot. Yeah. We have just kind of yeah. a, a a collection of these tools sitting around. Or you could just have yeah. one system that's intentionally built so that you do that naturally as part of the flow yeah. for writing in the system. Hmm. So that's really, um, that's really, I guess, New Shell's sweet spot as people begin yeah, yeah. to adapt to using it. And then it has so much power, hopefully, as it grows, it has so much yeah, power yeah. that if you need to use it in a different area, then it's ready. So, okay, mm. I need to do this kind of analysis. Boom, you're there. Um, yeah. We were talking recently about adding like task support so you could run a task in the background and then have a structured Ooh. way to communicate with that task in the background. Oh, so, that's mm, nice. Yeah. So I was kind of wondering, like, what, I mean, and like, I mean, maybe you don't have to answer this. Like, what actually is a shell, right? Because, like, how, <laughs> how 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 is it how is it different from from let's say a scripting system? Because mm -hmm. to a certain extent, like Bash and C shell are programming languages the same way, or scripting yeah. languages. Like, you can make them do quite a lot of stuff. And if I mean, yep. if you've if you've ever talked to a sysadmin, they've made it do a lot of stuff that it probably shouldn't be doing. Um, <laughs> yep, and yeah. so. So, yes, I, when when I was messing around with with new shell, I think like a year ago, uh, close to release, that was kind of the question that popped in my head. It's just kind of like, all right, like this is definitely pushing outside of what regularly a shell is, and that got me wondering, like, okay, what what, what actually is a shell? You know, like, or mm -hmm. where where you draw that line, or 
from your experience, like, do you approach this as like another language you're 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 building, or is it? Uh, I don't know. I I think that's a great question. Uh, so I personally approach it as something that is both a shell and a programming language, and I think that that's something where, and I may get myself in a little bit of trouble. I just don't think people have done that before. I'll just say that. So Bash was a shell first, and then a scripting language after that. Python's a scripting uh, language first. I guess you could maybe use it as a little bit of a shell. I've seen I've seen yeah, some yeah. crazy things that people do. PowerShell is both a, a a language and a shell. I'll just stop. <laughs> I do work for a particular company. Um, <laughs> So, but I don't think anyone's actually, especially so Yehuda has done programming language design for many years. I've done programming language design for many years. Coming at it from that perspective of language design first in a shell. So it, it started as a shell. It's meant mm. to be interactive. And then uh. you could lift that up. And for example, we ported new shell to WebAssembly. So now you can take new shell and embed it in a website and do new shelly things in your website. Hmm, cool. So this is um, like, it's kind of uncharted territory. I don't really know where that line is. And I don't know what, <laughs> yeah. I honestly don't even know what we're creating. Ultimately, I think it's growing uh, towards whatever it will become. But we just have a lot of ideas and we just want it to grow in the way that feels natural for it. Hmm. All right. Well, it, it definitely got me excited because I, I mean, this whole idea of like, okay, because if you look at your average bash pipeline, 90% of it is really just reshaping the data so you can feed it to something else, you know, like just like the impedance mismatch between the stuff you're connecting together um, in engineering is, is massive. You know, yeah. like you need a whole bunch of connectors in the middle to make the data flowing or make the program do what you want. And so that aspect of new shell is like very eye-opening. Like when I read yeah. initially, I was like, yes, why, why is nobody doing this? And then you start thinking about it and you're kind of like, yes, this is also hard. That's why nobody is doing it. But, <laughs> um, <laughs> I, well, I think too, I mean, being a, a Rust podcast, um, I think one of the superpowers that helped us out early on was that Rust has this big ecosystem of crates. So yeah, we could right. have a crate that does serialization, deserialization extremely fast with Certe. Mm -hmm. And then mm -hmm. we have adapters for tons of file formats. So mm -hmm. I added Excel spreadsheet opening in a couple of hours because someone spent all the time writing an Excel spreadsheet crate, you know, or yeah. Toml or YAML or, you know, you just name it. There's a yeah. there's a crate out there that does the the reading and the writing and and whatnot. Mm -hmm. And okay, I want to draw a table, a nice table in the terminal. Okay, well, yeah. someone wrote a crate for that too. So we, we yeah. really, you know, you get an idea, you search through crates, you're kind of, uh, you know, finding that, that right fit. Okay, this looks good. And an hour later, you've got something hacked together and plugged in. So yeah. really that, that kind of ecosystem around Rust, not just the fact that Rust is extremely fast, so we could do like extremely sophisticated processing by tying these things together, like naturally. That's awesome. But then this additional set of functionality of oh, I just reach into the crates I/O, 
pull out the crate that I need, stick it in, boom. Okay, there we go. Now we have Excel. Um, really, yeah. I think, gave us a lot of power early on. Yeah. And speaking of the data data model thing, I think it uh, for me, the, the nice part is that because I remember writing bash scripts with, uh, you know, cut and then delimiters and, you know, extracting fields and using all these weird Unix commands to just to get some values out of it, especially, you know, loading with multiple CSV files and, and all that crap. I think that there it is, as you said, it's it's like plain text. So you have to think a lot and, and every command looks super cryptic and it is right. unreadable once you write it once. <laughs> it's impossible to debug. Uh, I think bringing that data model kind of thinking to 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 shell you know that are you know uh, available at the shell that that makes it super easy for so many use cases you know it, yeah. it's just a different way you know. I actually I think you hit I think you really hit on something that's really important for programming language design that isn't talked about enough which is mm -hmm. how readable the code that you write in it is like if I mm. if I write what's natural in that language, can I read the output? You know, can I yeah. read that source code two months later or six months later? I think mm. one of the things that Rust did really well is that by and large, I can pick up a project that I wrote six months ago, look at it, and know what it's going, know what's happening. Like a lot of it is yeah. uh, is in front. Like the functionality is kind of uh, up front, and mm. so in New Shell. You know, we avoid things like lots of sigils and, you know, symbols and whatnot, <laughs> yeah. um, because it's important that the first time I see it, even as a new user, I should be able to go, okay, I think I could guess what that's doing. That's like 80% yeah. of the battle right there from a language yeah, design yeah. perspective uh, that they can say, yeah. oh yeah, I, I might actually be able to make a change to this, right? Mm -hmm. So now that knowledge spreads around the team and more people feel comfortable editing that that you know software package. You know, that unfortunately, it's taking away you know the 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 magic of knowing these arcane you know, enchantments. <laughs> <laughs> because that, uh, that's 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 how I got into Unix, right? You, you know all these weird looking commands. Every command has a weird looking shit. Yeah. Like, oh, I know I know this thing now. <laughs> and yeah, then, and then forget and, after using it two times. <laughs> And there's, I mean, there's not to say there isn't a kind of a time and place for that. Like having <laughs> you know, like really key things that get done in the language very small. So in Rust, yeah. you have the question mark operator because you yeah, do value-based yeah. error checking all the time. You need that yeah. to be as small as possible. And yeah. you just get used to some of the, the optimization around that. Let's say, okay, this, mm. we're all going to agree this is worth, you know, shaving yeah. off a few characters to get. But if you make that like your your devoted principle, so nothing has a high priority, you shave off characters off everything, then it looks like yeah. total line noise. It doesn't make any sense. You know, the high priority things have to be the the focus. What's so, that? but there's an actual reason why the old school Unix commands are short. Because back mm -hmm. in the 70s, like the PDP, like it's a big central machine and you're on a teletype. It has to go yeah. on a wire to the machine and like your, your teletype has, I mean, the bandwidth is, so I mean, small, it's yeah. infinitely small. So yeah. it just takes a long time to type something out because like you, you hit the button and like it takes a while for it to get to the PDP and then come back and render on the screen. So DD is two characters because like it, it takes them, you know, it's a noticeable amount of time to actually write something out in full. 
So yeah. all of like the primary Unix shell commands, like there are two characters just because, well, like they had to type these a lot and like it took a while. Like it's not with our machines where they're like, oh yeah, it's right there. <laughs> um, like if they had to type half a sentence every time, like that, that would be a big drag on the productivity. So also flags are like dash and like one character. You could need it to be small because it killed the feedback loop because of mm-hmm. like the technical limitations. Now, obviously those things are long gone. Yeah. Right. Like those technical limitations haven't been around for a very, very long time, but we're kind of like stuck with the syntax. So, but it was at the time most likely an acceptable trade off. I'm, I'm pretty sure that these luminaries were aware that, yes, this makes it less readable. Mm. But you know what? I, I can churn out a whole lot more things because I don't have to type it out in full. Like the length did matter. Yeah. Like it's yeah. not an accident of history or just because they were like, yeah, it needs to be, you know, some people want stuff to be short, but there was an actual, like it, it was design, right? Yeah. Like they, it's, they were solving a problem. Yeah, mm-hmm. no, I think that's totally well said. I think that um, one of the, the constants of computer programming is that things always change, you know? So yeah. while that was made perfect <laughs> sense for them in the 70s, you know, yeah. we live in a totally different era and yeah. our tools need to evolve and our languages and our habits need to evolve. I agree. To, to kind of match that. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. No, I totally agree. So from, from New Shell, um, then, then, then you started this um, Rai project or, or what, what is the next? Oh, so well, not Rai so actually, one. so this is, Rai came about before, uh, before I started at Mozilla. So I had... Mm not done any serious systems programming for at least five or 10 years at mm. that point. So I'd only done JavaScript. And it's not that that's not to put JavaScript down, right? These are just mm. two styles of programming. But yeah. I was not used to that style of systems programming. I was also not used to Rust. Rust is a mm. pretty big jump, especially back then. There wasn't a strong documentation. You know, the mm. Rust book today is like the second version and it's so good. Back then, we uh, had like the initial documentation. I think um, Steve had written Rust for Rubyist or something. So I was like yeah. looking through some of that documentation, hmm. and I I wanted to learn Rust well enough that I could, you know, if this job panned out, like if I got the an interview, I want to hmm. know Rust well enough that I could get a into the interview. Hmm. So Ray was that was like, let me take ChaiScript, which I knew. And then port the ideas into Rust. So mm. this really flexes writing a parser in Rust. How do I mm. integrate with Rust in a way that feels natural to Rust? Can I do the same thing we did with C++, which was, you know, the things where, um, you know, working with the types in a way that feels natural to Rust, like being able to register a structure, being able to register a function, and then all that just you know, you can call in the scripting side like you would expect to. And mm. uh, yeah, I worked on that for a couple of weeks, got it to work, did a couple of releases, put it out there. Mm. Incidentally, I flash forward, um, it's like a six months, a year ago or something, someone picked it up. Like I had abandoned this project, just totally abandoned it. They picked it up and said, well, we want to use it on a project we're working on. How about... Um, how about this PR or this PR? And I looked at the quality of these PRs and I said, guess what? 
you're a contributor now. Yeah, you're contributor. And I just gave them commit access. And they just yeah. took it and ran with it. Like it is like a fully realized programming language now for, for scripting Rust projects. I was like, mm. yay, again, with the open source <laughs> and you never know what's going to happen. So um, yeah. yeah, that was that was a fun surprise. Nice. So speaking about the, the language itself, uh, I mean, there are so many projects that you worked on from compiler to error messages to new shell to Rai and everything. So how do you, uh, so if, if you, what is the good part? What are the good parts about Rust and what are, not so good parts about Rust. Oh, goodness. Hmm. <laughs> See if I can avoid getting myself into trouble as I answer this question. Um, I would say most of, most of the power of Rust being that it really emphasizes, I would say, two, two things. Yeah. This idea of say well, actually three things. There's a there's a Aaron Tron when he was the manager of the Rust team mm. said, you know, being able to emphasize like safety, power, and usability. Or he had some like three words like that that all kind of work together. And I think that yeah. really the the emphasis early on to say we don't have to trade and only have two of the three if we mm come up with the right design, we can balance all three. And yeah. I think that that has, over the years, has really carried Rust um, in a way that you pick it up today and, well, I can I can write a CLI tool and it's actually pretty easy. You know, you could do the same thing in Go, but now with Rust, you've got the additional power that Rust provides if you ever need it. Like, it's always at the ready. Mm-hmm. And I think that um, that sense that it's, easy to get started. Like I've got the crates ecosystem. I can, you know, I've got an IDE support these days with Rust yeah. Analyzer, which is way better than the yeah. Rust language server. So, you know, props to the team there. I think they're doing amazing work. I use Rust mm. Analyzer all the time. But I, I have this set of tools that, you know, make it easy to get started, but then Rust power in the background that is always available to say, okay, now I want to process 10,000 rows of this thing. I don't have to sweat. Like, how in the world am I going to optimize that? It's like, it's always yeah. there that I can I can get that systems level power at any point. Mm-hmm. I would say that's, that's for me, that's Rust's strength is it's got um, a lot of stuff to make it easier to use, but it always has that power behind the scenes. As far mm-hmm. as a weakness of Rust, what is a weakness of Rust? Um, I would say probably for me, and this is, you can see why we would do a project like New Shell after working in Rust, is that mm. things like the compiled times put you in a different style of programming than yeah. you might want to be in. So mm. there's a time and place for long compiles and, and doing that kind of thing. But a lot of programming wants you to just sit down, type something in, and immediately get an answer. So you have yeah. this very uh, quick, quick response. I'm just basically asking it questions. Okay, how about this? How about this? Does that look like what I want? Nope. Tweak it. Does that look like what yeah. I want? And yeah. that style, um, once you taste a little of that, like I would say, okay, that's that's the trade-off you're making when you're using Rust. Mm-hmm. To get that power, you're paying to step into that slower, more thoughtful programming. 
And yeah. one of the things I really like about new shell is I don't have to do that. <laughs> I can just yeah. jump in. I can yeah. use the same Rust power for data manipulation and processing behind the scenes. So that engine is yeah. a tuned engine for doing that. But the language I'm working in is that interactive, easy to just type and experiment kind of yeah, thing. Yeah. yeah, I think this is something that 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 I notice as well because I write closure code, but that has you know it's a Lisp, so we have a REPL, and you, you have this you know continuous experimentation, and then coming back to the code again, and then there is no um, compile check cycle anymore. Um, so you just write a function, test it in REPL, and then move on. Uh, but going uh, to to Rust or coming to Rust or something, it's it's. Uh, I did some C plus plus back in the day in the nineties, and so it's it's a kind of similar pattern where where you write a program and then wait for the compile and then see what is going to happen. But as yeah. I said, I think Rust Analyzer is doing pretty pretty good job on that one, right? It's it's giving way more uh, interactivity. Yeah, definitely does. Yeah, and yeah. we I use it all the time when I'm writing mm -hmm. new shell. Um, yeah. Let me do a quick sidebar on Newshell. You just reminded yeah, course, me talking about closure <laughs> and a Lisp. Yeah. Um, so here's a fun aside about Newshell. So Newshell, all commands are basically macros. So they can delay. Um, I'll say it this way. A command can tell the parser how to parse its arguments. We call it the shape of the arguments. So mm -hmm. you can say, OK, the Let's talk about the where command. I, I mentioned that one earlier. So the yeah. where command says, I have one argument, and it has the shape. Well, it's currently called math, but you could think of it as comparison. I have a comparison that is given to me. Mm -hmm. In actuality, that is three, you know, three arguments, let's say. You know, you've got the variable, the operator, and maybe the value. Mm. But... You know, that's just, it's just a command with three arguments. And if you think about mm -hmm. it in a shell terminology, right, I've got a command, I've got three yeah. arguments. Like, what, yeah, yeah. where does the language come in? And that's because the command, like a macro or like a, we, we don't really have programming languages that do this that I can think of, where the mm -hmm. types themselves are directing the parser to tell it how to parse what's coming in. So by saying, mm -hmm. I expect a comparison. The parser now knows to switch from treating each each argument separately as treating a row of arguments as one thing. So it will nice. then switch the parser mode, parse in all these tokens or all these arguments, turn them into something else. Um, so yeah, it's hmm. from a Lisp perspective, I think a Lisper yeah. would have a fun time looking at how the parser works and how commands work inside of new shell because it's very inspired by lisps yeah yeah so you so you have this um kind of a read and eval thing yeah in in, in the shell itself okay in the shell itself that's, in that's the the way the parser works with yeah, yeah. The, the way the definitions for the commands work yeah. so so effectively the command is kind of like a reader macro then what it mm -hmm. would be in a lisp mm -hmm. yeah yeah i mean it's kind of like a it doesn't have full freedom. Like a reader macro may have more freedom that, yeah, that yeah, we yeah. give you. But I, it, I think that's a good of, point. Yeah. But it has a, a set of, you know, sub programs, I guess, in a reader macro that, you know, you can pick this shape or this shape or this shape. And then from there, you're kind of setting the parser up to run these 
sub uh, parser sub programs. Yeah. Yeah. Mm. Ooh, oh, that's wow. nice. I'm gonna read up on that, man. Like you got me uh <laughs> got me interested. No, you, you got me you interested on, on macros. <laughs> I know. I have got to there I th- I feel like we've snuck some stuff in that we haven't documented well. There um speaking of New Shell, the one year anniversary is coming up in like a week Ooh, and a congratulations. Half. Oh, thanks for that. And I'm planning on putting together a, hopefully a really good blog post talking about all these fun things that we designed along the way to help mm. make New Shell what it is. So yeah. I'm I'm gonna try to remember to put the way that the parser works into that because I think <laughs> it's a really cool feature of New Shell. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so is New Shell your login shell now, or is it still something mm, that you yeah. start? <laughs> yeah, I actually was apparently pretty late. So I mentioned Steve Klavnik um, yeah. a little bit earlier, who wrote the books and and whatnot. So mm-hmm. he was using New Shell full time before I was. Kind of, he kind of embarrassed oh. me on Twitter. <laughs> I was like, "Oh, maybe one day I should switch it to my login shell." He's like, "You haven't already? <laughs> I did that months ago." I'm like, "Okay, Steve. Yeah. Okay, my bad. I'll switch. Yeah. I'll switch." Um. You know, when you dog food, you know, we need a yeah, better yeah. term than dog fooding. But I think we, we yeah. call it drinking your own wine, you know? Yeah, <laughs> that sounds much better. <laughs> or brewing your own your own beer, whatever. <laughs> right. When you yeah. when you actually are the one consuming it day after day and <laughs> seeing, OK, whoa, yeah, that's that's a bit iffy. We should fix that. You know, it gets the polish yeah. that it deserves. If you're not actually using it every day, it's not going to get the polish. And so yeah, once I switched and some of the other team has switched, um, I think the more recent releases feel a lot better. If you've used mm. new early on, you're like, wow, it's a bit rough. Then I would definitely yeah, say, yeah. give it a try. Like 0.16, 0.17. You know, you mm. can set your key bindings now. You can uh, make a custom prompt and the custom prompt is all in new shell code. So if you get the prompt uh, how you want it, you just paste that into your config or whatever yeah so yeah. it feels it feels a bit nicer than it did before nice yeah right. so what is the what what is the, so what the next step for you i mean because you, you you've worked on so many different areas already so um i'm assuming you're using rust at work at microsoft uh, at azure i'm not oh. yeah i use actually typescript so i went okay. back to my, my <laughs> uh, typescript still, still, heritage. still your project still yeah <laughs> yeah Still something but I worked on. Can I can you can you say something about which part of Azure are you working on? Is it the cloud side or is it sure. the Azure DevOps? Yeah. Or? Um so I work on there's a, a project that started about a year ago called Azure SDK. And mm-hmm. the idea with Azure SDK is each part of Azure um, had varying levels of support for different languages. Obviously, yeah. you know, C sharp is gonna have a pretty strong support being a Microsoft. Yeah, yeah. But what does yeah. it feel like to use from JavaScript or TypeScript? Well, that might differ from part to part. Or in Python. Mm. Okay, that might differ. Mm. Or in C yeah. or you know, whatever. So yeah. this team's goal was let's actually take experts from each of the languages, stick them together, and then we will go service by service, help them design or even design ourselves a new set of APIs that match a really clean, um, uh, clean uh, design guidelines. Baseline, yeah, 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 yeah. 
And then so it feels really natural. Like you come into it from Java and it feels like it was meant for Java. You come in from TypeScript, it feels like it's meant for TypeScript yeah, yeah. across each of these services. So we've converted, I want to say we've converted about um, 10, five to 10 services so far. And we're just kind of working our way to, yeah. to grow into more and more Azure yeah. services. So it's a bit like an inverse gRPC, where gRPC feels natural in pretty much no language. Um, <laughs> I'll take your word. I, mean, <laughs> I haven't tried that one. <laughs> yeah, it's fun. I quite, I quite like it, but it's it, it's never idiomatic in any language. Like if you use right. a gRPC API and like the code that it generates, it never it, you know it's big in the Go ecosystem, but it doesn't feel like idiomatic Go. If you use it from mm -hmm. JavaScript, it doesn't feel like idiomatic JavaScript. Like there's, yeah, it's again a bit of an impedance mismatch. So I like that. Mm -hmm. Like you know, we kind of make sure that the APIs feel natural for the environment you're in. That's that's great. Yeah, nice. That's fine. So, um, any other um, projects that you want to highlight, or our work, or any other topics? Um, I think, I think, I think. New Shell really is the one I've got as far as my free time and open source time. <laughs> that's the one that's really yeah. got my eyes because I feel like any idea I have, you can kind of say, well, some of these actually do fit in New Shell. And then, of course, <laughs> you end up growing New Shell in some interesting ways, um, yeah. which is fun. I, I don't mind indulging that because I think as it grows, it's going to find where it wants to yeah. where it wants to be. We can have you on next year, and it'll be something totally different, and we can fill another hour and a half talking about. Yeah, it could it's going to be. be great. Could be. <laughs> but how cool. how you know beginner friendly is new shell code? If you if you you know uh, if somebody wants to contribute, mm. uh, do you think they should know a lot of Rust and you know all these macros and you know, so advanced we actually Rust? I think that's a great question. One of the things that we as a community, I mean, learning from Rust and other projects that we worked on. We wanted the mm. new shell community to be super friendly. Like you can come in as someone that hasn't used Rust before. No one's going to yell at you. You know, yeah, if you yeah. want a beginner <laughs> issue, well, we're happy to point you at stuff that you can get started with, even if you don't know very much Rust. You know, mm. maybe that's a little doc change, or maybe that's a string change somewhere. But it's uh, that's fine. At yeah. that point, you've got you know the compile chain working. You've done a PR. You've got it reviewed. You've got it landed. That's success. And that helps the yeah. team. So we tried to sort the issues so that if you're a beginner, you can come in. You don't have mm -hmm. to know new shell internals inside and out. Because as you can imagine, something like how the parser works can get a little tricky yeah. or how internal processing works for the streams can get a little tricky. And that's, yeah. you know, the, the more brave can or the more experienced Rust developers can jump in and we can tell them how that part works. But yeah. it's really, there's a lot of places to kind of come in because the code base is is fairly large um, mm -hmm. that you can come in and say, well, I don't know a, a ton of Rust. I've got, I've got some Rust. What can I work on? So, okay, mm. would you like to make your own command? That's very, um, it's very isolated from the rest of the system. You can kind of pattern match. Okay, we've got tons yeah. of existing commands. Just copy one over. You know, we had yeah. someone come along and, and write a calendar command. So you can type cal and get a structured calendar. Okay, cool. Um, and they just kind of pattern matched over the existing commands, did a little copy paste and the little hacking and oh, hey, it works. So yeah. um, 
you know, really, if you have a little bit of Rust experience and want to help out or want to try your hand at it, like, yeah, we'd love yeah. to have you. Perfect. So that actually made me think of one more question, because one of the, well, quote unquote, powers of the existing shells is that, well, you've got a few built-ins, right? But the majority are external programs, which are coded to work against SDN and SDOut and SDR. Um, and so is that something you aim to support in new shell as well? Because I, I, I'm guessing like right now it's a bit more of a monorepo, like effectively any command that leverages the power of new shell is a built-in. And so hence it lives in, in like the, the new shell repo mm -hmm. and has to ship with new shell. And I think one of the reasons why, why bash is kind of still around is because I can, you know, I'm chaining other programs which are not bash together. Yeah. So it's kind of like it can evolve at its own pace. Like I don't need to get some code inside of bash to do something new. I can bring, uh, it's a, I mean, it's not a plugin mechanism, but it's fairly, I mean, similar way. Like it, you, you string, um, um, other things together. So it makes for it like a distributed way of, you know, it, it scales nicely. Um, yeah. is this something that in new shell, like if I want to write a program, that that feels native to new shell so kind of you know that can speak its internal data representation i i need to build make that a built-in or is it something that you want to formalize maybe later so i can make my own binary and still leverage that power yeah totally absolutely you know we were talking about um converting a javascript project to typescript and how much easier it is to do it one file at a time rather than forcing you yeah. to jump all the way in. <laughs> and yeah. um, for new shell, there's a different ways that you can get in. So one of them is that you can write a plugin. So that plugin allows you to um, interact with new shell, but you don't have to be part of the internal commands of new shell. You can you know, just be an executable named in such a way that we see you and then we'll load you and there's a kind of a JSON-based protocol that we can run uh. with the plugin. And some people have wrote some plugins in other languages, and that, that was pretty cool. There's something else that we haven't started yet. And again, taking a page from TypeScript. In TypeScript, you have an existing JavaScript file, and you can put a .d.ts file with it. And this uh. is like a header file. So it's just the type information yeah. for that JavaScript without touching and manipulating the JavaScript file at all. And we would love to do something like that for new shell, where you could have a, a description for how Git works, like the Git command line. So like, what parameters does it take? What are the types of the parameters that's giving? What are the flags, you know, whatnot? You know, how do we do completions for it? And that could live mm. outside of Git. So you could have a directory mm. that just has all these description files and just drop in ones for the commands that you use. And now we can, you know, figure out how to pass set, you know, a set of flags into Git so that the results come back in a way um, that we could destructure. You know, we could turn that into a structured thing. And we could do completions. We can do, you know, we could even check the flags that you pass in and then give you a little error message if you pass a flag that Git doesn't support. You know, things like that, all without forcing Git to be new shell compatible. Hmm. So that's something that we'll look into soon. Okay. Right. Well, that's nice. Because I think that's, that's, 
I mean, I'm, I'm fairly sure that, that I, my, it's my opinion that this is why the shells have been so long lived because mm. effectively you didn't have to touch the shell to sort of give it new powers as new programs were written. You could use them. And so it'd be interesting to see like how that evolves in new shell because I, I, I'm, I'm, I really like the idea of it. And I, I guess I tried it out too early because I, I tried it out almost a year ago, like very shortly after the original announcement. And like you said, it was kind of like very rough and I was very busy at the time. So I was like, okay, it doesn't sound like this is ready for me yet. <laughs> but um, And also shell is like one of the you know fundamental things that you want. To yeah, do, you don't want do that to what break. You want it to do. <laughs> exactly. And and also, you know, uh, all, all the muscle memory and commands and, and shit and whatnot are yeah. so much into the into the thing it's it's very difficult to break the habit and then learn learn the new way but i think that uh, especially with all these new rust tools on the command line i think slowly they're they're taking over the things right you know bat and then rip grep and there are so many things now i'm using day to day and exa you know but still they are still kind of symlink to my previous commands that i that i know <laughs> so yeah. it, it, the transition is still you know, step by step for me yeah. But I'm, I'm looking think, forward to trying trying the thing. Yeah, I, I think it's a big ask. It's a big ask. I'm, so when I did Chapel, we talked about that earlier, mm-hmm. and trying to get C plus plus programmers to use Chapel or to use Rust, it's a big ask because there's so much muscle memory. There's so much, so many years yeah. of experience and comfort yeah. in that system. Even if it's complicated, even if there might be advantages, the disadvantage of having to relearn everything is a big yeah. disadvantage. Yeah. And yeah. so anything like designing a programming language is a long game. You know, yeah. it took years yeah. for people to to try out TypeScript. And even if they liked it, to really get the momentum, yeah. to have enough of those DTS files and, and whatnot to support those movements. Yeah. Yeah, and yeah. so, you know, I kind of look at New Shell in that way, too. You're not going to have yeah. an overnight success with a New Shell, <laughs> right? Yeah. People might try it. <laughs> hey, that's cool. But um, it's not going to be one of those things where in a year you've got like millions of users. It's got to yeah. it's got to prove itself, and people have got to try it and build up scripts in the new language. And we've got to hit a 1.0 yeah. because people are not going to use a shell that's <laughs> not 1.0 to do anything yeah, serious. Yeah. So, yeah. Yeah. yeah, that's nice. It's 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 a fantastic project, though. I mean, uh, I I'm looking forward to keeping at least you know open you know one new shell in one of my team sessions so so i know you know if if i can't if i don't know how to do something there i can fall back to my old habits so that's amazing so um wow it's almost one and a half hour but i I still want to have you know one one non-programming question for you so i saw that you published some poems so um who who is your favorite poet (laughs) wow a question i did not expect (laughs) at all Oh my goodness, put me on the spot. <laughs> I honestly I don't have a good answer for you, unfortunately. So I um I started writing poems when I was in high school. And mm. you know, of course, there's like Keats and all the, you know, basics back then that they teach you in <laughs> in uh, high school. Yeah. Yep. And you know, the Whitmans and whatnot. And that was kind of percolating in the back of my mind, but mm-hmm. I would, you know, I got into the beat poets back in, you know, in college and like the kind of music I was listening to was very heavily inspired by people that 
clearly wrote a lot of poetry or wrote, you know, that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, and that just kind of percolated. We have a long tangent on, you know, the kind of <laughs> spiritual threads that run through the poetry that I write. And that's yeah. from like my experience with like spirituality and religion growing up. And then that continues yeah. to this day. So a lot of the kind of writers that I read now are more in that vein. They're more in the um, the spiritual, I guess, umbrella rather than, yeah. um, you know, kind of the formal education stuff. But, the, but the, is it the spirituality more towards like Sufism, mysticism side? Of yeah, you can you can see the Sufism I, I in can, there. Yeah, yeah. There's a strong I was Sufism some poems and. And I was reading some poems. I felt like, oh, it seems similar to, you know, Meflana or a bit of, you know, Sufism uh, sense yeah. there. So I was curious about what. Yeah. In know, fact, uh, I think I have a Hafiz um, book. He's amazing. Oh, wow. Um, around mm-hmm. here somewhere. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Clearly a Sufi inspiration <laughs> in that. And I think that there's, um, there was definitely a lot of looking into, um, just like the broader, you know, you kind of get raised in a Western society. And then the mm. first time you really start experiencing Buddhism or Taoism or um, any of the like Vedic stuff, you just, your mind mm. starts opening, opening to like, there is gigantic thousands of years of different ways of thinking and yeah. different experiences. And, um, so yeah, that's been part of this journey going on behind the scenes that I don't talk a lot about on say Twitter is yeah, this yeah. <laughs> kind of exploring that side. And for and it's interesting that you would ask about that and you kind of have the background because I feel like a lot of people in tech don't talk about it. And I don't know why. Yeah. I feel like we're very curious intellectually, but yeah. at some point that intellectual curiosity like cuts off. And we don't, yeah. we don't push beyond that. Yeah, I mean, it's it's a well. I'm I'm of course I'm I'm from India, and I've been trained a bit in the in the Vedic stuff as well, and all the rituals and all the stuff. Uh, learning a bit of philosophical stuff there, and also, you know, getting a bit of understanding about Confucianism and, and Buddhism, and that because India is like a you know we have all these weird philosophies mixed together into mm. into one mm. giant ball of uh, you know weirdness. So, and <laughs> yeah, and I think the, the the abstraction levels and and because programming is is more or less like that, right? I mean, you you are on your own, and then you're thinking, you're you're constantly introspecting things, and and there is a, there is a strand of you know introspection and understanding yeah. the world a, a bit differently there. Yeah, that's true. I, I don't know how many, but I see most of the people, you know, uh, most of the programming people, they they get into music, they get into some of the arts, obviously. Yeah. And, Absolutely. and not enough philosophical spiritual discussion though. Well, and and yeah. maybe maybe eventually it will go that way. You know, if you think about yeah, yeah. if you're introspective about how you design programs, and <laughs> I'm gonna draw it, bear with me. <laughs> We're gonna go here. Of course, of course. So, yeah, yeah. So you're you're thinking about how you design programs and you're kind of drilling in and optimizing and playing around with the code and looking at it. And mm. I think more recently people have started doing that with their psychology. Like we have neuroplasticity and wow, what can we push our brains to learn and do and understand? And a yeah. lot of like interest in meditation recently in 
kind of tech community, I think, is realizing, oh, wow, we as people, not to use this term, but we're kind of programmable. You know, we need to understand how that works, our own internal software, our own internal systems. And if we can understand that, we as people can be a lot more flexible, a lot more capable, you know, a lot more compassionate and other things as well, too. Mm. Yeah, yeah. So I think maybe that will be the inroad is just people looking into mindfulness and meditation Mm. and having a set of experiences around that. Um, Yeah. For a whole different podcast, I would love to just drill into meditation and <laughs> I talk think, about. I think I think that I think we should do another episode. You know, like um, just to just to pick your brain more on the on the poetic side of you and philosopher side of you. <laughs> we, we'd love to have you back again. Yeah. Uh, that would be amazing. Absolutely, that'd be yeah, fun. Yeah, yeah. I mean, because you know, everything everything is connected, right? I mean, we can say yes. You know, it's just programming. But as you said, you know, the the programming is is not just about programs anymore it's about people it's about the systems that you're building and the Absolutely. problems that you're solving so of course i mean it can be and art then it is less you know yeah, yeah. and how you but build every- and how you built them you know yeah it's, exactly. it, for me that's what draws me to rust is not just the language but the community and the, how yeah. it's built and the values that that brings and i think that also ties back to i mean it, it's 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 place in the world, you know, like mm. it's, it's not a exactly. thing on its own. Yeah, and, exactly. and so I, I don't, I, like you said, like, yeah, this is something totally unrelated, but I don't think it's unrelated from, yeah, yeah, from I mean, what we do. I think it's, yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think an awareness, so there's this whole area of philosophy and industrial design around systems thinking, like mm. this idea that everything is part of a system is interconnected with the system. Incidentally, yeah. Buddhism has been talking about this for thousands of years, but okay. <laughs> yeah. yeah. In the West, we can catch yeah, yeah. up. That's fine. Um, yeah, yeah. But this idea that everything depends on something else in it itself mm. depends on something else and so on and so on. So this yeah. whole, there's no one thing that is an individual. Everything is yeah. interconnected in a way that I do something that influences you. You do something that influences someone else. We're all influencing each other. The food that we're eating, the way that we're living our lives is influencing other things. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, yeah, the way that we're doing programming and the code that we're writing, I, I wrote this uh, tweet the other day about like every, every engineering that, like, every kind of engineering that we're doing is always political, meaning yeah. we're engineering yeah. into a system that is reacting to this program that we've just created or this hmm. hardware we've just created. And then that has a chain reaction into the rest of the system. So we're yeah. always changing it from one state to another that always has political ramifications, that always has social ramifications and so on. Yeah, yeah. I, mean, I agree. It's like, uh, you know, you're, you're, not, you're not isolated, right? Everything is, yeah. everything is you know. In fact, it's extremely it's hard to isolate yourself. And even yeah, then, exactly. by removing yourself from the system, you've just impacted the system. Changed the system. Yeah. 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 <laughs> That's true. Anyway, so I think we should certainly do, uh, you know, um, another yeah. episode, you know, diving deeper into different <laughs> sides of the aspects of the programming and, and the world. Um, but it's almost 90, 90 minutes. So I think it's a good, good time to take a break <laughs> and then come back to this topic again. Yeah. So oh, this uh, is good fun. And, and, this is good fun. And, and it's been fantastic to have you on the show, Jonathan. And it's amazing, you know, all the all the work that you've done so far. 
um, and also the ideas that you are bringing into the community and, and you know, putting it out there. Um, and hopefully, you know, great work you're doing with Azure. And I use Azure at, at, at work. Um, so, okay, let's not get into that one too much. <laughs> it is. It, it's fun. And um, also, you know, good luck with the new shell. And, you know, we'll be excited to uh, try it again. And um, to the people who are listening out there, um, as Jonathan said, you can contribute to it. You know, it's because it's, it's out there. And, you know, once something is open source, it's a community project. And we can make it better together uh, with, with the ideas from Jonathan and, uh, and Yehuda and other people as well. So thanks a lot for, for joining us. Um, it's, been, it's been amazing. So and Thanks for having me. I had a lot of fun. Thank you. Thank you. Likewise, it was great. And you know, maybe once New Shell goes 1.0, we can have you back. Oh, yeah, yeah. that would be cool. I, I <laughs> honestly don't know when that will happen. Programming languages take a long time. I try not to... <laughs> scare people out, scare people that want to contribute. And they're like, oh, yeah, when is it going to be 1.0? I don't know, maybe like four or five so, years from now. <laughs> we'll see, so, we'll see. So, so let's fix when it's the date ready. next year this time. No pressure. Yeah. Um, yeah. Gosh, I can only imagine what it will look like a year from now. <laughs> yeah, like, yeah, that's I'm fine too. That, that 2021 is a lot nicer to the world than 2020 was. <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah. I mean, I'm, I'm hoping 2020 will end, you know? <laughs> <laughs> at some point, anyway, at some point, please. Keep yeah. the expectations low. Yeah. <laughs> On that um, high note. <laughs> yeah. Anyway. Th thanks a lot for listening. And we'll be back with, uh, you know, um, another episode soon. And thanks again, uh, Jonathan, joining us uh, for all the way from the other side of the world. Yeah. Thanks for that. Bye. Thank you. Bye. Bye. -bye.